Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Philip Smith. Philip is the co-founder and director of Cotswold Property Limited. Headquartered in Gloucestershire, the business provides bespoke building and construction services in and around the Cotswolds region. Philip, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Hi, Scott. Delighted to be here. Likewise, Philip, it's a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme with us. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership as a whole. So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader in isolation first and foremost, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates. To be a leader, to my mind, really, is it's the business of inspiring those you, you, you look after. Um, in, in my role, it's a business of setting the direction of the company and showing everybody within the, the company is sort of on board with what we're, what we're trying to achieve. And if we think about your personal leadership style in the context of the business, how would you describe that? Again, I, I think it's not helpful to be too authoritative leading. Um, leading by discipline isn't necessarily the way forward. I think mm. what is, is more helpful is to inspire others to really join you on the journey rather than do it because they're told they have to do it, so to speak. Mm. I would agree with that, certainly. And I think we are moving away from that more draconian, if you will, style of leadership, aren't we? And we're moving towards a much more collaborative and people-orientated way of managing. I know leadership and management are fundamentally separate things in a certain sense, but I think there's an element of people management that has to come into leadership, isn't there? Because ultimately, the team around you is just as important as yourself at the helm, because without them, you're not necessarily the leader of anything as such, are you? No, that's absolutely right. And, and every single person in the company is an ambassador for the company. And it's it's really important from the top to the, the bottom of the company. You know, we we focus on 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 service and the, the client experience. It's really important that everybody from the top to the bottom of the company can deliver a good experience to their client as they'll all be face to face with them at some stage. And I think culture as well becomes incredibly important in this sense, doesn't it? Of course, people knowing exactly what their roles are, of course, empowering them as well to do the best job that they can possibly do and encouraging them as well to take on their own form of leadership in a way, because being able to sort of do things for themselves as employees, sort of push the boundaries, go out of their own comfort zones, that's an important way of development for themselves and also allowing them to take on their own form of leadership as well, isn't it? It absolutely is. And you, you touch on what is a, a constant challenge for us, a relatively fast-growing company. Um, we, we constantly need more people and we need at the same time existing people to be stepping up if they're ready for it and if they want to do it, to, to take on more responsibility. And judging when the right time for people to do that is, is quite hard. And that generally involves conversations with the individual's concerned to see you know if that's something they'd like to take on and you know where they'd like to go in the next couple of years and um, I'm aware um, here as well, Philip, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but in the early 2000s, you did spend um, a little bit of time in the British Army, didn't you? Um, were there any elements um, of leadership from that experience that you've been able to sort of transfer over into the uh, the business world within your roles? No question at all. Absolutely no question at all. That, that was a great experience my time in the military some time ago now. and. Um, there was a, a bunch of, of, of leadership I was taught back then, which I continue to, to try and employ 
today. And again, you know, despite it being military, even back then, it was not about shouting at people. And you have to you have to lead by inspiration. It's not a question of just shouting at people to get stuff done. And with regards to inspiration, are there any individuals that have really stuck out that you've encountered during your life that have had a profound influence on you? And if maybe not people, perhaps experiences? God, yes, a number. That's uh, that's uh, put me on the spot. Yes, I think um, there's a, a few have inspired, and and I guess the other way as well. I've I've immediately seen as people who are in leadership positions who perhaps aren't great leaders. Um, I've done various corporate things since I left the army. There are there were a number of people in there. It's quite hard to put a finger on exactly who they were on the spot. There, I must say. And that's absolutely fine, of course. Um, it, it's a little bit of a challenge to, of course, remember names uh, such as that uh, directly. Sure. But um, people who we encounter, especially in our working lives, uh, not just, of course, um, managers, uh, but also colleagues, mentors, friends, those sorts of people, they can be some of the most influential leaders out there, in a sense, can't they? In a sense, the people that are closest to us. And that's important to uh, to remember. It is, absolutely. And actually, I was, um, from a very early age, one of my first jobs in catering, mobile catering at showgrounds and the like. I worked for a wonderful gentleman called Ian Thomas, who was an ex-Royal Marine sergeant. Um, and I was very young at the time. I was maybe no more than 12, 13 years old. But uh, I think the, the the values that Ian instilled in me at the time still hold true today. And in fact, Ian was largely responsible for me then pursuing a, a career in the military a few years later. Now, one of the important things about being a leader um, as well, uh, Philip, I think, is recognising the fact that we're constantly learning and we're developing as well. We're not even the finished product, even in leadership roles. And in the current climate, we're certainly going through one of the greatest learning curves that business has ever experienced with the COVID-19 pandemic, no less. And it's ultimately been an unprecedented crisis with different leaders of businesses, organisations and governments having to feel their way through this uncharted territory. Um, for somebody like yourself who's working within the, uh, the property industry and um, how has it been navigating the last few weeks and months because i can imagine it's been a tremendous challenge but given the work in construction that you do um it's kind of been almost business as normal to a degree to a degree uh, you're right this has been a huge challenge um you know a bunch of the guys who work with us um are on a self-employed basis so if we were to stop working they would have no income and effectively no no real fallback position. So what we've needed to do is 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 balance our responsibilities and livelihoods of the guys that work with us towards our responsibility to the community and our social responsibilities as well. So what we were lucky enough to do, we have a few sites, so we've been able to spread the team out across the sites to ensure that we could they could still go to work, which was always the government guideline. There was it was always that we should go to work if you can go to work but they could still respect the social distancing that was required when at work. And actually, we came through it okay in the end. Supplies did get very short um, at one stage as various builders and merchants shut down. But um, no, we came through it well. We've had no cases of COVID, and I, and I believe it was a very tricky situation. I think we did the right thing, and I, and I hope we behave responsibility, responsibly throughout. And there's been a whole um, load of debate during this time as well about the sort of transparency, clarity, if you will, of uh, government guidelines um, of COVID secure premises, how to work safely. And that's going to be even more relevant um, in the next few weeks and months as more businesses begin to reopen in the hospitality industries. Um, Have you been satisfied throughout, Philip, that you've 
been fully aware of what's been expected of you business-wise and you continue to do so? I understand there's to be some concerns about that, but really I think you just need to apply some, some common sense to what you're doing. And, mm. and as far as we've been concerned, we've just looked carefully at what the government has said. Yes, arguably there have been some small contradictions, but really you know, apply some common sense and it's been straightforward enough as far as we've been concerned. And then looking into the sort of more long-term future under this new normal that everybody is talking about, what do you envision for yourself and the business as we move into the next stage of the pandemic and really look into the next year? And what do you really hope to achieve? Well, it's exciting times, to be honest. There's um, there's a, a number of projects that were put on pause because of the pandemic. And now we're hopefully seeing an end of that and coming out of it. There's a, a lot of clients who want to be getting on with the, the projects we originally had planned. Nothing has been cancelled indefinitely so to speak so we're looking at a very busy time and um you know hopefully the team will continue to grow throughout the next year it's a, it's a very exciting time for us that's really encouraging to hear certainly uh, philip and you know i think it would be fantastic given that it's great to speculate about the future but of course we won't know exactly how it pans out until it happens if we could have you back on the program at some point in the next year just to catch up and see how some of those hopes are being borne out and maybe discuss what other initiatives the business is getting involved in at that time yeah, I'd be delighted to. Be delighted to. It'll be a real pleasure for myself um, as well, Philip, um, because it's been very informative having you uh, join us today, not just for myself, but also from a listener's point of view. And um, until we do touch base again in the future, I'm sure, most importantly, do continue to take care and do stay safe, because we're certainly not out of the woods yet, even though things are starting to look a little bit rosier. Certainly. Thanks a lot. That was Philip Smith speaking, the co-founder and director of Cotswold Property Limited. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Sir Andrew is a former England cricket captain and since his retirement, he's taken on the role of director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. However, during his days as England skipper, he joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the ashes both at home and in away in Australia. During his tenure, he also racked up the second highest number of test victories for an England captain in history. Quite impressive. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished speaking with Sir Andrew. That is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dress-Cothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dress-Cothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career. Full stop. And um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity, and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets, and there was my chance, and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to? see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that uh, I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how 
how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those situations. Um, And when managing 
a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, 
and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so f so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become avid cricket fans I know of some it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be yeah it was an incredible day wasn't it I mean I think in our vision like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it mm. no one could have dreamt no, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them 
um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though... We're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about well, it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much... Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely yeah. no they, they were right behind us and um you know we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important 
step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.